several months ago, I planned a sermon that I was going to preach for a time in the future, and today is that day. I knew what I wanted to say, I knew the passages I wanted to use, but I had difficulty in trying to find the right title for the lesson. And so what I did on one Saturday or Sunday, I saw a photo of a football player sitting on a bench, dejected. His team was losing and losing badly. He had his head in his hands looking down, and across the top was a title written, Give Up or Get Up. And uh, after watching or seeing that, I thought about how many ball games were lost because the various players on that team gave up. They didn't get up and get back into the game, get their mind, their, their mindset back into winning. They simply thought, I'm going to give up. The photo in front of you shows a solitary lady sitting in a church building. And as is the case in many church buildings, there's not very many people there anymore. In fact, the statistics that I read just recently, that the church in many places is struggling and dying, and that the average church in the United States now is losing 5% of its membership every year. That means in 10 years that the size of the congregation will be exactly half of what it was. Give another 10 years and then it will be half of that. And it doesn't take long to realize it won't be long before the church in the United States will be like those churches in Europe. Many of them no longer exist as a church All that is left is a building, and those buildings have become nothing more than museums. I know that on the tours that I've been able to take into the Bible lands and sometimes to places in Europe, we walk into beautiful buildings that were built by people with the idea of this is a house of worship. But as you walk into that house of worship, there's no one there worshiping. People are just admiring the architecture, what was left, what remains. And so I ask the question, who will turn off the lights when the church is gone? Who's going to be left? And who is going to do what needs to be done? So what is the solution? Either you give up and say, there's nothing we can do, it's all in the past, or do we get up and try to do something? I know many people have in your minds thinking, well, doesn't the Bible say that Paul speaking, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase, and that we're not responsible for the growth, that God is responsible for the growth. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. If there's no one planting the seed, there will be no harvest. If there's no one who is weeding the plants, if there's no one out there watering and trying to bring it to maturity, there will be no mature harvest to be taken. 
Oh yes, the Bible is quite clear. You read passages like Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents and God gives us the abilities but He expects us to use them. This morning, here's what I would like for us to consider together. I'd like for us to take our Bibles and look at some examples of people whose mindset, their thinking had become discouraged and despondent and they were ready to give up. Then I want us to look at an encouragement by our Lord. The one that says, get up. This is what I want you to do. And then to look at being enabled as the Bible will teach us. So let's begin an exploration of Scripture. If you will, I want you to think about Judah and her mindset of thinking back. In her mind, it was all the the days that have gone by were better. We are now in a position that everything is going the wrong direction. In fact, all that remain are the vestiges of the former glory of the people. In the book of Psalms, chapter 137 and verse 1, we read, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We cried. Oh, how beautiful it once was. But it's not now. Ezra in chapter 3 and verse 12 says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice and when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted for joy. These old men, they looked back and they, they said, Our former glory was so much greater. The Lord's house that He had built through Solomon, oh, it's so sad to see what's there now. And Haggai, chapter 2, verse 3, the question is asked, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? How do you see it? Judah, this is what they were looking at. They were ready to give up. They said, it's all over. The glory, the great days were days in the past. Not now. Now it is nothing. And then Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Nehemiah is not talking about the foundation of the temple. What he's talking about, the walls of the city of Jerusalem. How he had arrived back in Jerusalem. And we read, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and its gates burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Brethren, 
What shall we do? Shall we sit here and weep and say, our former days were the better days? The days when every pew was filled, every voice was singing strong in its praise to God? Or are we going to say, well, that was just then? Or are we going to focus on the future? Now, I want to point out to you at the same time, when Judah was going through this very depressing time, looking back and saying, we can't do it, there were a number of people trying to make it worse. There were a number of people who were glorying in the fact that there was a decline. And we read in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 5, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even unto the reign of Darius, king of Persia. There were people who were hired whose job it was to make them want to give up. I don't know if you realize it or not, but there is a concerted effort in our country to try to demonize Christianity. There are people who are telling you that if you read your Bible and you preach that Bible, then you're going to be considered old and outdated and a vestige of life gone by. You can't any longer say that homosexuality is a sin. No longer can you stand up and say that the morals that are found in Scripture are true and right. And there are people who are just rejoicing that churches are declining. In Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 19 and chapter 4 and verse 3 with regards to the walls. But when Samballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Chapter 4, verse 3, Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Whatever they build, even if a fox goes on it, he will break down their stone wall. Mockery. People would say, you know, what are you feeble Jews doing? What do you religious people think you're going to accomplish? Don't you know that you are just antiquated? No longer important. In Psalms chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, listen, as the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. You see, in their minds, they are setting themselves up to confront those who are God's people. As a result, many people were ready to give up. Notice with me, if you will, the attitude that the ten spies had when they were to spy out the land of Israel. They had come up to the border of the promised land at Kadesh. 
they were sent out to try to find out what kind of land it was and the inhabitants of it. Truly it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It was a beautiful land. But when they came back, here's what they said. The men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people. For they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Notice carefully that last phrase in verse 33. We were like grasshoppers in our own sight. How do you see yourself? How do you envision what you're going to be able to accomplish? Are you sitting there with your head in your hand saying, I just can't do it. I'm not strong enough. I don't have the power. I don't have the ability. And so I quit. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm going to give up. Such was the attitude of the ten of the spies. Sometimes people look and say, there's just too many obstacles. Everything that is placed in front of us is just seemingly one obstacle after another. In the book of Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah got the people working on building the wall. And they've sort of got stirred up a little bit. And they are started trying to do a little bit. In chapter 4 verse 10, then Judah said the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish, we're not able to build the wall. So many obstacles. So many things to overcome. Do you want me to be honest with you? Every time it seems like we are ready to embark on a period of growth, somebody has to throw up something, whether it's doctrinal or some matter of life, that throws everything into chaos. Maybe a false doctrine arises. Or maybe a person wants to be in charge and they're going to rule or ruin. Or maybe it's somebody who's just wanting to live an ungodly life and it just draws all the attention away from what we ought to be doing. What ends up happening? Everybody's just ready to drop and just give up and say, it seems like every time we get started we have a reverse, so we quit. Will we allow the church to disappear in our generation? What will you and I leave behind for the next generation? Well, let's take a little bit of time for some encouragement. You know, our problem is easy to get discouraged. But we have to be people who see the potential. Who see the possibilities. Now, I'm going to ask you to get your Bibles to turn in this next passage. 
And the reason why is because I think it's important and valuable that you and I take some time to maybe reflect on this, not only as we go through it this lesson, but later as perhaps we reflect on the lesson this afternoon. And I'm going to ask you to turn with me to John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 43 through verse 48. John 4, verses 43 through 48. I'm going to try my best to put this in its context for us to see it as the Lord intended for us to see it. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say... There are still four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. This is the Lord's great encouragement to his disciples. The very first thing that he says, I am here to finish The work that God has given me. Every once in a while I like to see a coach go over to one of these boys sitting down on the bench who are so discouraged and say, get up. You're playing tackle. You get in there and you block. Get up. Make sure you understand you've got a job to do. It's your job. We're depending on you to do your job. In John 17 and verse 4, Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. God the Father gave a task to the Son and Jesus said, I've done it. I have finished it. Sometimes people say, but I can't guarantee the results. You may not be able to guarantee the results, but you can guarantee that you did your job, that you did what you were called upon to do. I like Ezekiel chapter 2. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. Wow, right there, stand on your feet, get up. Then the Spirit entered me, and when he spoke with me, he set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, okay, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they shall know that a prophet has been among them. 
God is looking at Ezekiel and saying, Ezekiel, I am sending you on a mission, on a job. Well, Lord, maybe they won't believe me. They may not. But there's a mission you've got. And even if they don't believe, they'll know that there's a prophet been among them. They'll know that there's been preaching that has taken place. Now, as you continue on in that passage in John 4, do not say there are four months to harvest. The harvest is white already. Sometimes we are caught up in this idea that we look and we think it's always something to be done next year, next month, next week. We are great procrastinators. We're the kind of people who believe it's always something four months away. In Haggai chapter 1 and verse 2, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. What the Lord pointed out to them through Haggai is, Well, you think it's time for you to have nice houses to live in. Why can't you spend some time on building the Lord's house? We have plenty of time for all of our other activities. When are we going to devote some time to building the Lord's church, His body, the people? And so what does God ask them to do? Jesus, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. This is important now. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields. I know that you've heard this illustration perhaps many, many times. A man who owned a shoe company wanted to expand. He wanted to find a new market to be able to sell his shoes. He sends a representative to a place called Africa. The man sends back a message to the owner. No need to come here. Nobody here wears shoes. He sends a second man. The second man says, send all the shoes you can. Everybody here needs shoes. What's the difference between those two men? One man had given up before he ever started. The other saw the potential. Look, what do you see? You want to tell you what many of us see in our society, in our culture today? We're saying people, they don't care about religion anymore. We've got all that we want. We're satisfied with who we are and what we have. We see people who are so content to be able to no longer be religious in any fashion whatsoever. And it appears as if the whole world is irreligious. And somebody says, there's no market there. There's no potential there. But the truth is, there's a huge potential there. There's a tremendous amount of people who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They just don't know that they need it yet. It's our job to persuade them that they need it. Are we looking for those fields for harvest? Now let me put this back into its context. You remember this is John chapter 4. And if you remember, Jesus is going through Samaria. And they stop. 
at Jacob's well. And the Lord engages a Samaritan woman in a conversation. Now, if you were to ask those 12 men traveling with Jesus, are we in a good territory to spread the gospel? I would imagine many of them would say, no, we're in a bad territory. These are Samaritans. Jews don't have anything to do with Samaritans. We're just going to quickly hurry up and get through this area and make our way toward Jerusalem. Why don't you look at the context? Look at verses 39 through 41. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Do you see the potential and the context when the Lord says, lift up your eyes, the fields are white unto harvest. We're in Samaritan territory. That's a group of people we had never even thought about trying to reach. And that prompts the question, who might we be ignoring? Is there a group of people whom we would say, they're not interested? Is there a group of people who say they're, they're not important? You see, if the Lord's church is going to grow and be what God wants it to be, we've got to open our eyes. We've got to see the potential. What do you need? You go to Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest indeed is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray for the Lord of harvest that to send forth or send out laborers into his harvest. It's not the problem that there's not a harvest there. The problem is, is getting people to do the work. It's getting the people to realize, I've got to be involved in this. That's the real challenge. That's the Lord's encouragement. Pray to the Lord of harvest to send forth laborers. Go back to the context, verses 36 through 38. He says that he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Look and see the one sowing, the one reaping, both enjoy that. Many have done the work of sowing for us. There have been many godly people who have sat in these same pews on which you sit today. Godly men and women who have laid a foundation for the growth of the church for many days to come. We stand on their shoulders. They have provided a great direction for us. Joshua 24, verse 13. I have given you a land which you did not labor and cities which you did not build and you dwell in them and you eat of the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. We are enjoying the fruits 
of those who sowed before us. We dare not stop sowing the precious seed. We dare not let rot on the vine those things which others have sown. Do you understand the importance of the Lord's message here? Or as I referred to in the beginning, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. Now very quickly, let's talk about being enabled. Many of the naysayers said, well, we just can't do it. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the ability. I'm a one-talent man and don't ask me to do any more. God made some precious promises. Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Pause, stop here for just a minute. And lo, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age, God said, I'm going to be with you. Listen to Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. God is able to take fishermen like Peter and Andrew and James and John and teach them to fish for men. Colossians 1 and verse 29. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Or Hebrews chapter 13 verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight. You see, the Lord is able to work in us. He has our hands. He has our feet. He has our mouths to use to try to spread His gospel. We think about the situation that exists, the world in which we find ourselves, what are we going to do? The Lord's church can either give up or get up. We can either sit here and we can wring our hands and say, well, I guess we've lost the battle. Or if you want to use a sports metaphor, I guess we've lost the game. Or we can get up and say, I'm going to make every effort in my power, commit every bit of my efforts to do my job, which will we choose to do? I want to go back to that boy sitting on the bench with his head in his hands who'd given up. We are individuals, just like that boy is an individual. But we're on a team. We're a congregation of God's people. And whereas I by myself may not be able to do so much, but when I do my job and my 
teammate does his job and the next one does his job and our working together we're able to accomplish a great thing. Galatians 6 and verse 9. And let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. If we don't give up. Keep working. Keep progressing. Last week, two precious young ladies were baptized for the remission of their sins. Added to the Lord's church by the Lord himself. Acts chapter 2 verse 47. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you're willing to repent of your sins, confess your faith in him and be baptized. doesn't matter if you're young or you're old. If you've not obeyed the gospel, it's for you. And it's very possible that some of us look back and say, you know what, I've been sitting on the sidelines, doing nothing, contributing nothing, and I'm really hurting the Lord's church because I'm discouraging those around me. If that's the case, I hope you repent of that. Ask God to forgive you. If you want to acknowledge it in a public way, we'll pray with you. But brethren, the Lord's church is too important. The souls of men and women are too valuable for us not to put every effort in it to try to make sure that we spread the good news of Jesus Christ and his gospel. We're going to sing the song, Come to Jesus And if you're subject to the invitation, would you come as together we stand and sing?